so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. How can Christians work to defend all life from womb to tomb? Dan Darling moderates a panel discussion with Michael Ware, Matt Lewis, Kelly Rosati, and Karen Ellis on defining a holistic human dignity approach. We hope you find this panel helpful. We're glad to have you here at Evangelicals Full Life. Hope you're enjoying yourselves and, and uh we got a great panel lined up here. We've got uh, my friends here, Michael Ware, uh, Karen Ellis, Kelly Rosati, and Matt Lewis, all of you well-known, well-respected. So let's get, get right into it. Uh, Karen, I want to start with you first. Uh, you're speaking later tonight about the intersection of the sort of pro-life movement and the civil rights movement. Typically, these are not two movements that have been seen all the time as allies. And so... You're making the case. Is, is there a connection between civil rights and the rights of the unborn? Can you explain that? Well, I, I haven't, uh, you know, I'm speaking as an outsider, mm-hmm. looking into two movements that, you know, I'm, I'm not a civil rights advocate. I'm not a, um, uh, you know, an activist per se. I'm not a, uh, a pro-life activist in the sense of actually being involved with those movements. But I do teach a course on theology of human rights. And um, I think that the language of what defines human rights has changed in the culture. Even though there are, uh, there are documents, I think about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there are documents that kind of define those things. And so as those have shifted, the concept of civil rights has shifted um, over, the, over the years as well. Um, on the one hand, you've got human rights, which are granted by God. Um, they're inherent, dignity, the right to be, Essentially, and on the other hand, you've got civil rights, which is the right to do. If I can make an oversimplification, right? And those are granted by the state, by the government uh, that you live in, and they are connected. They actually one is the foundation for the other, right? And so, in between all of that, there's wisdom that needs to be applied for how do you live these this this foundational right to life, to the ethical, you know, to live ethically in that space in between, and so. Our civil rights, I think, should be a practical expression of our human rights. Should be. Isn't always, but should be. Historically, I don't think they've always been framed as being in opposition to each other. If you were to go back and look at somebody like Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a civil rights activist and and virulently uh, pro-life, um, so I think that's a recent development. So what I'm going to talk about later on tonight is the connection between the two, and I'm going to highlight some civil rights activists from the classical civil rights era who actually were also very, uh, they were responsible and responsible for kind of defining uh, the, 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 the way that those two concepts work together. 
Matt, you've been a outspoken pro-life advocate on, on TV and print, writing columns and speaking around the country for many years. As someone who's uh, watched this movement closely, what's your assessment of, of where we are and, and where you think we need to go? Well, I think the pro-life movement is in um, very good shape when you consider the, the culture that we live in and the obstacles and the fact that other issues that are considered socially conservative issues are becoming much less popular among millennials, for example. And so I think that the pro-life movement, um, whether that's just because the, the issue uh, resonates with more Americans. I, th I think technology, ultrasounds have certainly helped. You know, technology I think is actually underrated in terms of driving things. You, know, you put up a picture of your mm -hmm. baby, uh, the ultrasound of your baby on Facebook, you don't call it a fetus. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that the movement is good. And I have to say, I know this is a theme and it's probably uh, been repeated a lot, but I actually am a fan of talking about the dignity revolution and including the, uh, the right to life uh, of the unborn with other vulnerable groups. I think it's very appropriate, and I also think it's probably smart politics as well. Kelly, you've served as a pro-life advocate for many years, both on the state level and the national level, uh, most recently working as a VP with folks on the family, uh, working on important public policy. You've also been a strong advocate for orphan and foster care and other issues like mental health awareness. Sometimes when we advocate for a holistic pro-life view, we're often misunderstood to be saying that the fight for abortion, specifically laws against abortion, don't matter anymore. Yeah. So what do you mean when, when we talk about dignity from, from womb to tomb? Well, I think this is a really key question right now, and it's pivotal within the pro-life movement. I'm a very proud member of the board of directors of the March for Life. I have been an advocate for unborn babies for decades, um, but I couldn't be any more convinced that our success in reducing and ultimately eliminating abortion in our country is linked to the kinds of themes we've talked about here today, Dan, and that you've written about. Um, we are not going to be able to convince the people in the middle who watch us that we are about the sanctity and dignity of every human life if we don't apply that all the way across the board. And so what I mean by that is if we are passionate about the lives of preborn children as we should be, but we really don't have anything to say about perfectly preventable deaths of little children around the world, if we don't have anything to say about genocide, if we don't care about the loss of life for already born lives, then those who are watching and trying to make a determination about our arguments uh, with unborn children are going to say, yeah, I don't really think you are pro-life. I think you're pro-unborn life, mm -hmm. and um, I don't think you're consistent. So I think our success on abortion is inextricably linked to the comprehensive advocacy for the dignity of all human lives. Michael, you've served in the White House and have been involved in all sorts of policy issues over the years. Uh, you're also a pro-life Democrat. Uh, explain why having this position uh, on pro-life is difficult uh, in your party, but what can you tell us generally about the need for parties to have people inside them who have the courage to speak against policies that uh, deny human dignity? Yeah, well, you know, it's hard for a lot of reasons. One, it's just hard holding any position in, that's in contradiction to that which your party holds, mm -hmm. especially if you're in D.C. and sort of in politics, so that's one. Uh, number two is 
we've seen, uh, especially over the last 20 years or so, uh, increasingly uh, the, the parties sort of self-selecting and there's no longer the ideological diversity within the parties. So it used to be that you had a, a big chunk of Democrats that would regularly vote with Republicans on all kinds of issues and big chunks of Republicans that were regularly voting with Democrats. We just don't have that as much anymore. Now, there are a bunch of reasons we can't go into for now. The, the uh, financial side has become, the infrastructure has become much more built around sort of uh, coalition politics on both the right and the left. Uh, the the uh, media environment has made it so that our parties are um, act more as tribes and uh, more as uh, sort of what team you're on than uh, collections of, of thinking individuals. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so there are a lot of reasons for it. I think why it's important is, um, look, uh, uh, I, I, people often get the idea that when you go to the DMV or whatever and you go to uh, register for a political party that there's like fine print at the bottom that says, I hereby sign over my conscience to every jot and tittle of the party platform. Guess what? It's not there. You're not there. You're not, you don't join a political party for that party to influence you. You join the party to influence the party. And so one of the things our political parties need most are Christians who don't get their values from a party platform but from Scripture carrying their faith with them into parties, whichever party they decide to join and uh, advocating for the whole life, from womb to tomb, the dignity of life, and both parties have a lot of work to do when it comes to that. I think we can agree on, on that last <laughs> phrase. Uh, this, is, this is for the panel. Um, most, uh, if not all of us sitting here, I think, we're, we're, we're in a sense formed by the moral vocabulary of the pro-life movement uh, that has said, you know, for half a century almost, that the smallest and most uh, defenseless among us deserves dignity and protection. But there is this growing sense that we need to apply this, this ethic, as you have said, Kelly, to other uh, vulnerable people groups. What does this look like in your own sphere of influence? And what, what do you advocate for pro-life Christians in general? And, and any of you can jump in on here. Um, I'll jump in just real quickly. I think something that comes to mind uh, and is at the forefront of many of our communities is the issue of orphan care, foster care, and mm -hmm. adoption. And what we're dealing with when we think about the issue of foster care, particularly those kids in foster care who are awaiting adoption, mm -hmm. is that these are the very children that abortion rights advocates have said, gosh, they would have been better off if, they, if their birth moms had aborted them. And when you look at their life experiences, the abuse, the trauma, the neglect, they have had very, very difficult lives. And then there they sit in our communities, in our neighborhoods, waiting to see if there's a family that they can belong to. And so as pro-life people, as more importantly, as followers of Christ, if we aren't the families that these kids can be welcomed into, then where are the families? And there's 100,000 kids in the U.S. foster care system awaiting adoption. And there's 300,000 churches in the United States. Think about that math. If just one family in every third church would welcome home a waiting child, we would have no more waiting children. And then when we said as pro-life advocates, let those children be born, we will take mm -hmm. them. We would have much more credibility. Anyone else want to weigh in on that, that question? Well, you know, I, well, I just refer to uh, uh, more of Kelly's work. She actually just wrote a piece with uh, Catherine uh, Lopez about paid family leave. That, that, you know, what kind of economic system, what kind of social safety net are we building so that uh, 
mothers and parents feel more able to bring children into the world. And so it's all, it's all of a piece. Pregnancy discrimination, making sure that we're prosecuting pregnancy discrimination cases out of the EEOC. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's all important. I, I do think there, there is this sort, of, uh, this sort of idea that the pro-life movement should talk about everything but abortion. <laughs> and, I, and I think that can be a debate tactic that, that can sometimes be, be a bit man, manipulative. But understanding how it all fits together, uh, that, that we're not, this isn't just a political position. This is about the dignity of human life, which mm-hmm. exists no matter what sort of the political circumstances are, no matter whether it's convenient or not. Um, and, and so advancing that, that whole message is and to, important. And to Michael's, and to Michael's point about uh, some people not wanting pro-lifers to ever get around to talking about the pro-life issue. I do think that uh, the pro-life issue is unique in the sense that all these other topics that we're talking about are, are super important. And um, there are a lot of vulnerable people who um, are exploited and, and, you know, whether it's refugees or human trafficking or the elderly, there are a lot of, of topics that you would have a consistent stance about life on, but there's one group that literally doesn't have a voice or a lobby. I mean, in the sense that theoretically the media can go cover the border and talk about families being separated or they could interview somebody in a caravan. You can't talk to the unborn child and so I think that's part of why the pro-life movement is, is unique and very important. Sometimes it seems like the, you know, the, the pro-life movement uh, and those who really deeply care about justice can't talk to one another, right? So people who are rightly concerned about some of these justice issues kind of say to pro-life people, maybe just kind of back off wanting laws that protect the unborn or back off trying to defund Planned Parenthood. And sometimes pro-life people might say to justice folks, why are we talking about this issue? Why are we talking about that issue? And, and obviously, the motivation behind both of these movements seems very similar, that every human being is created in the image of God. How do we get these movements uh, working together and talking to each other? I'd just like to throw that out to the, the panel. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the way we do it is we continue trying to do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm very grateful for voices like Dr. Russell Moore and others who have been willing to say faithfully and tenaciously to both groups, we can't talk about justice without including justice for preborn children. We can't do it. And to the pro-life groups, we can't talk about life only for unborn babies mm-hmm. and not for babies who die of preventable death in their mother's arms. There are actually situations where people who are already born are losing their lives, just like unborn kids are losing their lives. And we have to be people who can apply those ethics. And I don't know any other way to do it, but to keep doing it and keep challenging both sides to consider the other. The other thing I would say that I think is really helpful, and I love this conference for it, is I think as we get to know one another as justice advocates and pro-life advocates, form relationships and um, do some work together, mm-hmm. that would also help strengthen the effort to bolster a comprehensive sanctity of life um, ethos. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? I think that's, um, that's a really great point. I, I was a person who really avoided the pro-life movement and kind of kind of thought, mm, pro-lifers, are, you know, I, I sort of bought the narrative 
And uh, I met a young lady, um, a dear, who's become a dear friend. Uh, was, we were speaking about uh, just a lot of the events that have happened that have been centering the, the justice conversations in the last five years or so. And she raised her hand at, um, and she said, at the end of Q&A, and she said, what's the difference between a lynching and an abortion? And I said, well, there is no difference. You know, if, it's, if the life is innocent, the life is innocent. And so that started a conversation for us and a relationship. And uh, we sort of became each other's go-to people. She sort of became, and she works, she's, she's a fairly high-profile person, and she sort of became my expert. And I'm like, you know, I heard this the other day. Is this true? And she could do the same with me. And we've been having this relationship for about three or four years now, and it's been so healthy and so life-giving and just humanizing both sides for each other. It's been wonderful. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the way that we're sometimes tribalized in, in a way. You know, where our tribes force us to, to be in one lane, not speak about, you know, other issues that might go against what, what we're doing. Uh, and Matt, I want to ask you, you you've recently wrote that you're, you're a Christian and a conservative, but increasingly it's, sometimes it's hard to reconcile both of those, reconcile the, uh, your Christian faith with some of the things you see in the conservative movement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that especially, you know, I guess people in politics have this, have problems and struggles. You've talked about being a Democrat, uh, a pro-life Democrat. I think increase. I'll put it to you this way. There, there was a long time where I didn't feel like there was any contrast with being like in the party of Ronald Reagan or in the, the movement of Ronald Reagan and being a Christian. And I would sit in the pews on Sunday, kind of nodding my head with the preacher. Like I might not be a perfect person. Heavens knows I'm not. But I always felt like there's a good good guys and bad guys, and I was clearly on the side of the you know the side of the angels. My my team that I'd signed up for, because you know, I think for a long time, all of the um, the Democratic Party pretty much had a lock on the pornographers and the 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 drug addicts and the movie stars, right? And then there was the Republican Party. You, yeah. You're gonna get we're gonna get the fist fight after this, aren't we? This is good. This is really good. But, okay, but here's where, I, here's where I become more inclusive. Um, for a while now, I've been feeling the opposite, where I'm sitting in a pew and hearing my preacher preach, thinking, yeah, I'm not so sure that we're welcoming a stranger. I'm not so sure that we are uh, standing up for character and integrity. So there's been a lot of uh, a lot of dissonance, and I've had to personally wrestle with this and grapple with this. And I think that, and I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out what happened. And and, I, and part of writing columns, by the way, is is almost like going to see a therapist. <laughs> you know, you, it's self help, and you're trying to figure out what you believe, and you're evolving and learning and talking to people. So I'm still, I'm still learning, but but I do think that one of the big differences between conservatives who are okay with the way things are going and conservatives who are feeling at least squeamish about the way the Republican Party and the conservative movement is going. I do think that it, it is almost not an age-old question, but a question that's been around for at least 2,000 years, if not longer, which is, are you looking for an earthly savior who is going to deliver 
uh, your tribe, or are you looking for a spiritual savior that transcends this carnal world? And I think that, now look, politics is important. Don't get me wrong. I think it matters. Issues, public policy matters. And so you should be involved in politics and you should be fighting for things you believe in, but that shouldn't be your priority. And it seems to me that the Christians who are prioritizing spiritual matters are not as susceptible to the tribalism as the Christians who are prioritizing finding that mm. earthly mm. savior, deliverer. It's mm-hmm. a good word. Mm-hmm. Michael, you've, you've had similar sentiments, not the way he described yeah. the parties. Um, but in your, We're still in, friends, right? Yes. In your book, you've talked about, you know, uh, you know, serving in government and, and, and what that experience was like. And I've also heard you say in, in, in various forums that, you know, for those who feel like they're politically homeless, and I'm going to get this quote wrong, but it's not that we should be surprised by being politically homeless, but we, sh- we should have never thought we had a, a home at all. Can you explain kind of some of the disconnect that Matt is talking about between being a Christian and being in sort of a movement? Yeah, I mean, so I didn't write that quote uh, specifically about Matt, but I could have. Uh, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, you know, the, the, the crisis is not that Christians are politically homeless, that we don't find ourselves perfectly fitting in any particular party, but that we ever thought that we could find a home in politics, a penultimate prudential a sphere of life when, uh, as Christians, we look to an ultimate uh, uh, a final source of judgment and conviction. And so, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's an important thing not to lose sight of. And I, I, I'll say, when we get this messed up, is uh, when we get it messed up, that's often the source of this conflict between the justice conversation and the life conversation because we get into all this kind of strategic thinking about uh, why we can't say what's right because it might hurt our side or this or that. And people, people, people see that, they see you choose allegiance with your political party and not even able to call uh, black, black, and white, white, and, and call the sky blue. Um, and so it's really important to keep that perspective that politics is important, but we're not in it just to sort of win. We're in it to be faithful like we are in all things. I think that is why I might have a slight disagreement with kind of the comfort that some may have felt um, a while ago in the Republican Party, I guess I would suggest that that would depend on one's perspective. So that if you were a, a, per, a certain demographic and your life was a certain way, that may um, seem good and right. But if you were not of that demographic, if you had a different life experience, it may not have seemed so good at all. And so I worked in a place where... Um, we would talk about the fact that the 1950s people kind of harken back. And, and the point to remember is that it really depended who you were. And Christians in the 1950s were not standing uh, against racism. They were not doing what they should do as it related to civil rights. They were not uh, speaking about domestic violence. They were not talking about sex assault. So there were all these things that were kind of seeded to be addressed by a political party or a political ideology that we deemed 
kind of bad and the opposite, when in fact, none of that's actually ever been true. There's always been this give and take, I think, that would have allowed people to sometimes be in one political party for an issue and sometimes feel at home in another. But I would say um, when Ronald Reagan was president, I think it was easier to convince yourself that, okay, this is the good team. It's not so easy anymore. But I think that and, depends and so on think, who you are, don't you think? That if you were a person struggling, if you were an African-American person struggling for certain rights and experiencing things that you and I maybe have never experienced, your perspective might be different. Sure, absolutely. But I also think, at the very least, Reagan's rhetoric was very inclusive and uplifting, whereas I think Trump (laughs) is not always that way. And so you could even argue, I guess, that Trump has done me a favor by forcing me to see things a little differently. Uh, and people okay. like me, probably. I think people like you. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> people similar to me. Yeah, we do like you, too. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I, one of the things I want to ask the panel here, because I think one of the things that can happen when we do talk about a holistic human dignity perspective, you know, even at this conference, we're, we're kind of showcasing all these different aspects of uh, caring for the vulnerable it's easy to come away and be sort of overwhelmed and think, man, i got to do all these things. So is there room for, for having this perspective, this holistic, holistic perspective, but also knowing here's my calling in this uniquely focused area? Can, can you all speak to that? Yeah, i just say God uses it all. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think, yeah, our experiences are going to lead us to be passionate about certain things. We can't do everything. I mean, that's part of the beauty of the body of the church, the, the, that we can trust that there are uh, that God is going to place people in positions uh, and uh, with issues on their heart that are going to lead them to advocate. Now that doesn't mean that we uh, are quietists on uh, everything that's not our issue. That doesn't mean that we're always prioritizing sort of in, in everything the issue that's sort of closest to our heart. But but I mean people really get this uh, burdened sense that, and get overwhelmed and say, well, I'm not going to do anything. It's all so complicated. People critique me no matter what we do. And again, you just got to be faithful with what you know that God has called you to do and then support others who have been called to other mission fields that are doing that work. I used to do orphan adoption care, I don't, but I support a weight no more and what Kelly was doing even when I wasn't working on adoption because I saw her doing that. I support Karen Ellis, I support Jenny Yang, who speaks here. I haven't worked on immigration policy in a while. And so, you know, we, we can support one another and also affirm the calling that God has placed on our hearts. That's really, Karen, you yeah, were Yeah, I think, yeah, I think Michael's uh, totally spot on, it, you know, and Paul gives us all this language right. um, about the body. And he says, for we in body have many members. The members don't all have the same function. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, there, there are different things that are for inward focus for the local church. And then there are things for out, people who have gifts for outward focus um, to serve the communities around yes. them. I think that we err uh, when we start to frame the cause that's closest to us as uh, some sort of um, works-based uh, you know, approach right. to being a little bit more holy than everybody else. This is the issue of the moment. And if you're not in this, boy, you know. And I think yes. that we've even seen, you know, blogs about people um, in, the, in the secular world doing justice work. And they're saying that, that life is exhausting. 
yeah. of trying to, you know, keep up with this, this facade that the more I do in this area because it's the popular thing to do. You know, mm. God has, uh, for, the, for the church, God has different calls for different people. And the more we think of less about competition mm-hmm. and yeah. the more about kingdom, the more we can support each other, I think. That's good. And it does seem, it does seem to really fall on, on rhetoric too, right? So even if we're not specializing in one particular area, you know, if we're working, say, in this, in this sphere, the way we talk about vulnerable people over here when we do yes. talk about them matters, right? Yeah. So that, you know, uh, you know, pro-lifers who really genuinely care for the unborn are active there. When, when we talk about other vulnerable people, we talk well about them. And, and yes. same thing if we're working on this issue that we don't denigrate pro-lifers, right? It, it, so it's really a matter yeah. of rhetoric, right? I there. think that's really important. And it's a rhetoric that betrays what's in the heart. Mm. And so I think is if we can always be thinking of it in terms of what is actually in our hearts and it ha- just so happens that when we don't denigrate other people groups, that's a good thing for being a pro-life person, but it can't be a strategy. It can't be an optic. It can't be a technique. It mm. needs to come from the heart, and, hopefully, and the, of Jesus. And the thing right. now, too, is um, Twitter makes it very dangerous yeah. because it's not just what we say, yeah. it's what we tweet. So I say, it's out of the abundance of the heart, the hand tweets. That's good. Um, That's good. You have to be careful because uh, you may be guarding your tongue and not saying Thoughts. bad things, but you, you know, it's so easy to, even if you're trying to make a joke, it could go wrong, yeah. as we've learned. Uh, I want to do sort of one, <laughs> I want to do sort of one lightning round here uh, really quickly before we leave. You know, for most of you have, you know, public positions uh, on some of these issues in organizations or things like that. But for the, the, the everyday Christian who's watching or attending here who says, well, I don't have a platform of a Matt Lewis or I, I, I don't have uh, the platforms of these other people. How can I go back to my community and care for the vulnerable? So just really quick answers if it's possible from each of you on some advice that way. I would say uh, the three things I tell young women and uh, my husband tells young men that we're discipling is pray fervently, learn responsibly. There's a lot of really mis- a lot of misinformation um, out there. So learn responsibly, learn your communities responsibly, um, and act compassionately. Those are great answers. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd say there's so much emphasis now on sort of individual action and what platform are you building. But one of the great things and effective things about living in a society like ours, there are all kinds of mediating institutions and nonprofits and groups that specialize in doing the work that you care about. So if you care about immigration, uh, throw some weight behind Jenny Yang at World Relief. You don't need to, you don't need, she's a, she's a person who's profession whose vocation is influencing the government on those issues and you know you, you could go down the list I know Heather from prison fellowship is here same thing on those issues and so I think about how you could leverage the resources you have financial time what you're volunteering and and actually join up with organizations that are created for for these purposes I would say um, it is so much harder and so much more significant to live pro-life than it is to talk pro-life. And so the work that we do just in our homes, day in and day out, um, whether it's caring for our children, loving our neighbor as ourselves, keeping an eye out for the vulnerable people around us and how it is that God is already moving and we could join him in that, Mm. there's something all of us can do just where he has us. And honestly, platform-related talking about pro-life is 
one million times easier than actually living it. And so just start somewhere, whether it's supporting pregnancy centers or other organizations, whether it's adopting from foster care or being a foster parent or being a mentor to a child in foster care or supporting an adoptive family. These are all very simple, easy on-ramps that can get you going in the right direction. I think they nailed it. I'll pass. (laughs) Good work, everybody. Would you give a hand uh, to our panel? Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Podcasts and leave us a review. And join us next week as we hear about building a peaceful home.